Tonight I'd like to speak about nature of compassion. What that quality of the heart and mind is and how it arises. How we can develop it. Compassion is the strong feeling in the heart that wishes to help alleviate the suffering of others. It's the response we feel when we come into contact with, when we're open to the suffering that exists. It's similar to metta, a feeling of loving-kindness, but it's particularly directed to people who are in some kind of pain. And so, when it's directed to people in that situation, the flavor of the loving care becomes one of compassion, one of concern. It's a movement, it's a certain movement of the heart that wants to take action, that motivates us to, act, to action, to alleviate the suffering. In some way, it's the spontaneous response of an open heart. Where do we find the suffering that compa compassion responds to? We find it all over. The suffering that's in the world is so pervasive. We find it in political situations, political injustice, we find it in economic exploitation, in poverty, we find it in disease. We find suffering of social interrelationships, of our interpersonal relationships. Any time or Newsweek or newspaper is really a catalog <coughs> of suffering. If we can open ourselves to feel it and to investigate it, we see how large a part of the world it is. And even when we live on an island of relative peace, or relative security, or relative abundance, as many of us do, when we examine our own experience carefully, we see the nature of suffering. We see it in our bodies. The nature of the body is to get older. It ages, it gets sick, it gets weak, and it dies. And this is not true simply for some people. This is the nature of the body. We see suffering in the mind. We see, as you have seen, you know, for the last nine days or so, a wide range of mental suffering, of fear, of anger, of hatred, of lust, of depression, of loneliness, of frustration, of boredom, of anxiety, the long list of mental notes. The suffering is there. For those of you who are still skeptical, about the nature of suffering in our lives and in the world. I'd like to suggest a little experiment. For the rest of the evening or tomorrow, look carefully to see why it is that you do things. Why do you move? You know, you're sitting, it's nice. And comfortable, and sitting, and sitting. And then after some time, it's not very comfortable anymore. And pain begins to come. So we stand. We begin walking. Fine, keep walking. Walking, 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 walking. How long can you walk? After some time, you're going to feel tired. It's going to ache. Fine, you lie down best position. 
lie, lie down. See how long you can you can be in prone position without moving. Five hours, six hours, ten hours, fifteen hours. After a while, it gets exceedingly uncomfortable, and so we have to shift. We're continually moving to mask the suffering that exists. But we usually don't pay enough attention to see that that's what we're doing. It's in the nature of our experience. It's in the nature of having a body, the nature of having a mind. And the importance of understanding this is that we begin to see that suffering is not a particular situation, a problem for particular people. It's a universal situation. It's the situation of being a human being. So then a basic question can arise. But if compassion comes about out of an awareness of suffering, and suffering, and the truth of it, is all around us, whether we look outside in the world, whether we look in ourselves, we see it, we feel it. If suffering is the condition for compassion to arise, and suffering is all around, why is the world not a more compassionate place? Why are we not more compassionate? The problem is that in many respects we have been conditioned to close ourselves off, to defend ourselves, to deny the truth of our experience. We avoid it, we don't like it. We don't like to feel it, and we don't like to see it. And so we close ourselves off from feeling the suffering that's there, whether it's in our own experience or in other people, in world situations. So it's helpful to take a look at how it is that we close ourselves off. How do we do this? If we want to open, we really want to allow ourselves to feel what's there, we have to see the mechanism of the closing. We do it in different areas, and I think they'll be very familiar to you. In one way, we close ourselves off to pain, physical pain. We don't like to be with it. And you've probably seen the many strategies the mind takes for avoiding pain. One is continual movement, just masking, masking it in that way. Or even when we sit down for a while and try not to move, the tendency of the mind to give sidelong glances. You know, the pain is there and it's strong. Kind of just look at it out of the corner of our eye, hoping that it will go away. That's a kind of resistance, unwillingness to be with it. Or maybe we gather up a lot of effort and willingness and courage, and the pain is strong, and we actually focus our attention on it. And we start bargaining. Mm -hmm. I'll watch you if you'll go away. <laughs> I'm willing to watch you <laughs> as long as you disappear. That's not mindfulness. That's not really opening, it's bargaining. There's an expectation, there's greed there, there's aversion there. We also develop what could be called the project mentality. Another way we relate to pain. Okay, this sitting, I'm going to work on my shoulders. A little <laughs> mental massage. Right? Or I'm going to 
deal with my knees in this sitting. That also is a kind of resistance or, or an unwillingness simply to be with things as they are, to see the nature of things, to see the nature of pain. What is the experience of pain? What is that? Can we really get right into it and feel it and understand it? How can we feel compassion? How can we open to the pain of others if we can't open to our own pain? So it becomes an important part of our practice. We do this not only with physical pain, we do it with certain kinds of feelings and emotions. Unpleasant feelings. Ones that we don't accept, the shadow side of our mind. They may be feelings of fear, or feelings of insecurity, or feelings of vulnerability, feeling loneliness, feeling depressed, feeling unworthy, feeling stupid. How many of us can open to really being stupid? That it's okay. It's okay to feel that. It's okay to feel unworthy. It's okay to feel lonely. Mostly, as with physical pain, these unpleasant emotions come up and we do everything we can to avoid them. How much of our lives, how much of our time and energy is spent trying to avoid feeling certain feelings? Just think of everything we do to avoid feeling bored. We fill our lives, you know, to avoid feeling lonely. It would be so much simpler. It would be so much simpler just to settle back and allow these feelings to come and we feel them and they go like everything else. They don't have to run our lives because of fear of them. It's really a question of coming to a very deep place of self-acceptance. And when there's not the self-acceptance to accept that, that it's okay to be open to this entire range. There's an interesting balance to come to in our experience of unpleasant emotions or unpleasant feelings. Suppose there's strong fear or strong sadness or anger or unworthiness, whatever it is, that feeling is there to be open to it without wallowing in it, to feel it without identifying with it. And an image which I like is in dealing with these emotions is the image of how we would relate to a child who was feeling the same thing. Suppose a child was feeling very lonely or very sad or very angry or fearful. What would we do? How would we relate? We wouldn't push the kid away. Say, oh, that's disgusting. I shouldn't feel that. We wouldn't do that. And we probably wouldn't get in there and add into it. You know, really getting in there and identifying with it and saying, yeah, it's really good you're feeling that. (laughs) There's some very natural response where we're acknowledging that that feeling is there. We acknowledge the reality of it in that moment without pushing it away and without wallowing or identifying with it. Just being there, accepting in a loving way. It seems so obvious that that's the way to be if it's some child who's feeling it, and yet we have such a hard time treating ourselves that way. It's the same process as these emotions, as this shadow side comes up, and it does in the practice. We really open ourselves to the whole range. 
it all starts to come up and to manifest. Can we stop avoiding and start relating to these feelings, opening to them? We close off to pain, we close off to certain unpleasant emotions, we close off to difficult people. I'm sure you know people who you find completely obnoxious, difficult to be with, abrasive personalities, just really hard. What do we do? Mostly we kind of push them away, close ourselves off. You can try and can feel it in the body. We can feel that, that tightening when we're with people who affect us in that way. A very interesting investigation or experimentation would be to see if it's possible when that situation arises, when somebody's energy or behavior is so abrasive to us, so difficult for us, and we feel ourselves pushing them away and closing ourselves off, just to take a moment to settle back, really getting settled in ourselves, and to see if it's possible to drop beneath the personality level, and to really take a look at that person and to see the suffering that may be there, which is the cause of that difficult behavior. Mostly we're reactive. We're just staying reactive to a certain behavior pattern, and we miss the actual, the actual suffering. And it's amazing how our response changes. When we're reacting to abrasive personality, we push away and we close off. When we open to the suffering that's there, there is an immediate connection. We can feel the love, we can feel the compassion in us. And it's not that it's so difficult to do, it's just remembering to do it. Not getting so caught in our habitual reaction of closing, of avoiding. We close off to pain, we close off to certain emotions, we close off to difficult people. We also close ourselves or avoid looking at what I call the existential transiency of phenomena. Just the fact that our lives and all life is in a state of constant, constant change, constant flux, flux, momentary. It's not even, when we look very carefully, things are not even lasting. The Buddha said that there are 17 trillion mind moments, just a, you know, a snap or the blink of an eye. I didn't know how it was counted, <laughs> but it's very, very quick. That, that's the process that's going on. And whether it's on that mind-moment level, or whether it's on the level of not acknowledging the changes in our body as they get older, whether it's not acknowledging the fact of loss and death, in all these ways we are denying the truth that everything is in constant change. There is no possibility of holding on. For compassion to arise, it's essential that we begin to open to all of these arenas of suffering. Because it's only when we open to the suffering in our bodies, in our minds, in other people, in the world, that's what makes possible the growth of compassion. 
I'd like to read a couple of poems by Ryokan, who was a Japanese hermit and monk, and he just lived by himself in an old hermitage in the mountains of Japan. He was in the middle of the 18th century. And his poems are very beautiful because, because of how human they are. They just express the whole range of feelings. He would live by himself and he would experience the joy of it and the loneliness of it and the sadness of it and the rapture of it and he'd go and play with the children. The book is great. (laughs) There's there's a book of his poetry and I'll just read uh, a couple of them. The vicissitudes of this world are like the movements of the clouds. Fifty years are nothing. Fifty years of life are nothing but one long dream. Sparse rain. And in my desolate hermitage at night, quietly I clutch my robe and lean against the empty window. Great image, sparse rain, and my desolate hermitage at night. Quietly I clutch my robe and lean against the empty window. The autumn nights have lengthened, and the cold has begun to penetrate my mattress. My sixtieth year is near, yet there is no one to take pity on this poor old body. The rain has finally stopped. And now just a thin stream trickles from the roof. All night the incessant cry of insects, wide awake, unable to sleep, leaning on my pillow, I watch the pure bright rays of sunrise. There's this continual flow, open to the joys, open to the sorrows, So when we read the poetry of somebody like Ryokan, a certain wonder comes into the mind of why we don't, like, like Ryokan, why don't we open to the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows? Why are we so busy pushing the sorrows away? There is a fundamental reason or cause behind that movement of mind. And it's because of ignorance. And ignorance, in this sense, it, it very literally means ignoring the true nature of phenomena. Because we have been ignoring the true characteristics of our experience, because of this ignorance, we are driven by the idea that our happiness, our lasting happiness, lies in the accumulation of pleasurable feelings. And this is the common belief in life, that if we accumulate more and more pleasurable feelings of all kinds, pleasant sights and sounds and sensations in the body and pleasant mind states, pleasant situation, pleasant circumstances, that that's the direction of happiness. And so we spend our lives in one way or another trying to accumulate all kinds of pleasant, pleasant experience for ourselves. And the ignorance in the mind, this ignorance of seeing the true nature of things, simply feeds the craving for more and more. The corollary of this, the corollary of this ignorance of seeking happiness, a lasting happiness, in more and more pleasurable feelings, is that we think the best thing to do is to avoid all unpleasant ones. 
avoid at all costs anything that might be painful or suffering. And so our life is spent in this dichotomy, grasping after the pleasurable, avoiding the unpleasurable, One of the problems, I'll, I'll mention a few problems with this approach to life, but one of the problems is that as we close ourselves off to suffering, to the truth of it, we also cap the wellspring of our compassion. If we refuse to open to the painful feelings, the painful situations, the painful circumstances in ourselves, in other people, there's no possibility then compassion to arise. We just spend our whole life in the avoidance of that and the seeking after pleasure of all kinds. And when we're driven by this ignorance, there's another very interesting phenomenon that happens. As we unceasingly seek after the pleasant and avoid the unpleasant, compassion, the possibility of compassion, becomes subverted into what is called its near enemy. Near enemy means a mind state that looks like compassion. It's similar, it's close to compassion, but actually is quite different. And that's the mind state or feeling of sorrow, which is very often our response to suffering. And the nature of sorrow is that there is aversion to suffering. When there is aversion in the mind to the unpleasant or the painful, when there's aversion to that, we may feel sorrow and think that it's compassion. And we see it very often in the response to, you know, to our own situation, or very often to the situation in the world, we think that the only motive to try to alleviate, for alleviating suffering in the world, is to get angry at it. But that's kind of a righteous anger at the suffering in the world. When we look very carefully, when we really look at the subtleties of our mind, we begin to see that in true compassion, there is not aversion. There is no attachment, there is no aversion. There is an openness. We feel the suffering and we're moved in a very immediate and and meaningful way. We're moved to alleviate the suffering. without it being mixed in with the feeling of aversion or hatred. The compassion then becomes a much purer, clearer motive. A transformation takes place as our wisdom replaces ignorance. When wisdom replaces ignorance, then we begin to see, not just believe it because we read it or somebody says it, but we see for ourselves how it's working. We see that a genuine lasting happiness does not come from seeking sense pleasures, including, including the pleasures of the mind. Why not? (laughs) The overwhelming feeling in the world is that it does, that that's the route to go. But when we take the time to look, to see, to investigate, it becomes very clear that pleasant feeling is not going to deliver on its promises. And it doesn't for several reasons. One is that they are continually changing. It's a very unreliable source. 
we're in good health, we feel strong, we feel vital, and then we get sick. We're youthful and we take a certain pride in that, then the body begins to get weak and begins to get old. It dies. These feelings that we're striving for are continually changing. How many pleasant feelings have we all had in our lives? Countless, countless, countless moments of really feeling good. Then why are you here, subjecting yourself to this? If pleasant feeling were all, delivered all that it promised, wouldn't have to do this. But we know. We know from our own experience, and when we reflect on it and investigate and look, we recognize it, that it's nice in the moment. It's true that we feel good when there's something pleasant going on, but it does not provide any kind of lasting peace, lasting happiness, genuine contentment. And so it's not worth basing our life energy on the searching after pleasant feeling because we've been doing that for so long. It's like drinking ocean water to quench our thirst. What happens? The more we drink, the thirstier we get. And that's the cycle. That's the cycle of samsara. You know, all these, the allure of objects, and we keep going for them and going for them, and we just feel more craving and more desire. We never come to the end. One time I was, I was teaching in, in South Africa. <laughs> I came across a kind of cookie the name of the cookie on the box was Eat Some More. <laughs> it was Eat Some More Cookies, <laughs> which was perfect for me. There's strong tendency there. Just have another one. One more, one more, one more, one more. As if we will ever come to the end. Our happiness does not lie in that direction. Not only does pleasant feeling not deliver what it promises, and it's amazing when, when we just pay attention to the media, you know, especially in Western culture, just through every sense door, it's creating these, these wonderful-looking you know, situations of beauty and contentment through the enjoyment of you know, the right cookie, or the right cigarette, or the right beer, or whatever. So the impact, the conditioning, is very strong on us. We have to see through that, see past that. When we also, when we look at the nature of desire, we see that the very energy of wanting, the energy of wanting itself, is suffering. How do we feel when we are wanting something? Now, if you had to imagine, if you had to represent in your posture grasping for something, wanting something, what would it be? What would it look like? It would probably look something like that. Right? Okay, just do that for a moment. Just Hold it. <laughs> what does it feel like? It doesn't feel so good when we pay attention. It's off balance, it's tight, it's tense, it's reaching out. When we look at the quality of the experience of wanting, 
we see that in and of itself, independent of the fact that whatever it is we want is simply going to change. But the very energy of wanting creates tension in us and creates suffering. It's the mentality of poverty. It's the mentality that somehow we're not enough, we're not complete, we're not whole, that we need something outside of the moment to actually fulfill us. And so we're continually looking outside of ourselves. The writer by the name of Wei Wu Wei wrote some very wonderful books. In a lot of them there are these short aphorisms. And he said in one of them that what we are looking for is what is looking. We're continually looking outside this wanting for something to fulfill us and actually what we're looking for, that fulfillment, is what is looking. And so when we see that, we can drop back into the moment, see that each moment is actually complete in itself. And when there's freedom from that wanting, from that grasping, from the reaching outside of the moment, we see that there is a much more genuine kind of wholeness. A much greater sense of peace. Wanting or craving or grasping you know, for pleasant feeling is suffering in yet a third way. And that is when it's very strong in the mind. You know, when that, when that grasping mind or craving mind is very powerful, it often leads us to perform actions that may be karmically unwholesome, you know, because of greed, or out of fear, or out of hatred. We may do things that actually sow the karmic seeds of suffering for us. Now, after the Buddha's enlightenment, he was sitting under the Bodhi tree, and it's said that he surveyed the world with his eye of wisdom, and that what moved him most to compassion, what aroused the compassion most in him, was seeing all of these beings busily engaged in life, seeking happiness, wanting happiness and doing the very things which caused unhappiness out of ignorance, out of not knowing where to find it. Because of our seeking for continual gratification of sense pleasure, of wanting, we keep reaching outside, looking outside of ourselves and never finding what we're looking for. Wisdom replaces ignorance when we realize that happiness comes not from reaching out, but from letting go. That is a powerful moment of change of understanding. And it doesn't mean that all of a sudden we renounce everything and go and live in a cave in the Hamadis and never have a pleasant sight or a pleasant... It doesn't mean that at all. We still live our lives and we enjoy pleasant things when they come. But the fundamental understanding has changed. We are not driven, we are not deluded into thinking that somehow our happiness lies in that. It's pleasant in the moment and that's exactly what it is. We don't build our life on a false assumption. We see that our actual happiness and a very deep feeling of peace comes from letting go in each moment, not from holding on. This transformation of our understanding frees the energy of compassion within us. Because our minds are not bound up 
Our energy is not bound up any longer with reaching out and pushing away. As long as that's happening, this wellspring of compassion remains closed. As soon as we stop that reactiveness and settle back, letting go in each moment, then there's the space for a real openness to the suffering, to the unpleasantness. We're not so busy avoiding it. We feel it. We feel it in ourselves. We feel it in other people. We feel it in the world outside. And in that space, we allow the response of compassion to come forth. We may feel this compassion in different ways. Sometimes people create a model of how it should be felt. We have an idea of what a compassionate person looks like. I think there are many ways. Some people are very empathetic and actually can feel the suffering of somebody in themselves. That's one way. Other people may not have that particularly developed sense of empathy. They, have a, they may have a more highly developed sense of concerned interest or loving care. And that's how the compassion is manifest and expressed. So it's really to open to our own way of expressing this feeling. There's also a particular meditation that can be done to strengthen the feeling of compassion. Just as with metta, as with loving-kindness, there's another meditation on compassion. And the way this is developed is by thinking of someone who is in a situation of tremendous suffering. And to begin the meditation, to begin our development of it, we try to pick the, just the most extreme example. And as we think of this person, as we hold this person in our mind, and our heart, we repeat the phrase, may you be free of suffering, may you be free of suffering. And the connection between the awareness of that person's suffering and the wish, the, the recollection to may you be free of suffering, slowly at first, first the repetition may seem somewhat mechanical, but as we focus in and concentrate on that connection, the feeling of compassion begins to grow very, very strong in the heart. There is this overwhelming urge a sense or wish to alleviate it. It starts in that way and then just as with the metta, we can expand it to other people and to groups of people to cover the whole world. May all suffering beings be free of suffering. There's actually a, as, as one does the practice, there is an actual physical movement of the of the heart center that takes place. It's a very focused and, and powerful way to develop this feeling. There is a very direct connection between our practice of Vipassana and the development of compassion. Because in our practice here, what we're doing is practicing opening to each moment's experience. We open to what's present, whether it's a pleasant feeling or a painful one. Painful sensation in the body, unpleasant emotion. Whatever it is, we are practicing openness. Out of that openness, compassion can arise. And out of that compassion, we can begin to manifest it in different ways in the world. 
there is no particular hierarchy of manifestation. Sometimes people have the idea that if you're truly compassionate, I don't know, you go off to Calcutta and work with Mother Teresa. That's a beautiful way, and she does beautiful things. It is one way. There are many responses of compassion. Sometimes people are moved with a direct intervention, actually try to alleviate the physical or mental suffering of another being. Maybe for another person, the compassion manifests as a work of art. some Some creative aspect. Maybe it's sitting in a cave in the mountains and just doing the metta or compassion meditation. Maybe it's the inclination just to be a little bit more loving and a little kinder to the people we meet. There is no one way, which means that we have to find our own way. We have to let it be a genuine expression of this feeling. The cause for compassion to arise strongly is our proximity to suffering. If we keep ourselves apart from it, then we don't feel it. We don't create the ground for the feeling to arise. There's a story from the time of the Buddha. There was one monk who was very sick with all kinds of festering sores on his body and bad smell and very horrible to look at and nobody wanted to take care of him. And the Buddha came and he saw what was happening and he came and very gently and tenderly bathed the sores of the monk, bathed the body. And then when the monk was feeling comfortable and somewhat more at ease, he taught him the path to liberation, the path to freedom. And that's a beautiful combination of the range of compassion to take care of the very immediate physical or mental needs you know, of the suffering, and then also to be able to see the root causes of bondage, the root causes of suffering, and to awaken ourselves and help awaken others. The beauty of our practice here is that it enables us to see not only the pain in the knee, not only the difficult emotion, but actually the root, the root cause, the fundamental cause of suffering in our lives. which is attachment, which is craving, which is clinging, which is grasping. And so the more we see that, the more we open to it, the greater is the possibility of freeing ourselves. One aspect of compassion, which sometimes we don't develop fully. Often our compassion is selective. We feel compassion for victims of injustice. And yet we close ourselves from feeling compassion for the perpetrators of the injustice. When we see past the action to the underlying ignorance, then we can begin to open ourselves to compassion for all beings. Thich Nhat Hanh, whom many of you probably know, this wonderful Vietnamese 
peace worker and poet and meditation master. And he's written some very beautiful poetry about the nature of compassion. I'd like to, to end just by reading part of one of his poems. It's called, Please Call Me By My True Names. I am the mayfly, metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the twelve-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life, and my pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills all four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names, so I can wake up, and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. Please call me by my true names, so I can wake up, so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. That is our practice. awakening to what is true in each moment so the door of our heart can be left open. <laughs>